this, I'm presuming this is all working. I didn't actually check the microphone. Excellent. Thank you very much. Well, uh, it is good that we can gather together uh, this evening. Um, we're going to be looking at correctly spelt the anti-Nicene church history, except we're not going to get close to, to the Nicene period. We're not going to get to uh, the council at Nicaea. Uh, we'll probably get to the, well, we're, I'm hoping that we'll finish the, uh, the apostolic fathers the Apostolic Church Fathers. So we'll get to about 160 AD. That's more where we're going to get to. Um, but, as I said to myself when I was doing it, this is my aim, is to do a general broad overview of church history. And if it takes me 20 years, that's fine. On the internet, you can just listen to them all one after the other. So it's, uh, it only takes uh, a much shorter time on those. So uh, it, it will go as it goes uh, this evening. And as we uh, come to consider uh, this section, I was going to read just one small uh, portion from Acts, um, in Acts chapter 16, uh, and we have the issues in Thessalonica, uh, and we read, now when they had passed through Amphipolis uh, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, which uh, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into, re went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded. And a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded became envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out of the, to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city, when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And it is my hope this evening that we come to see, and to seek to apply in our modern day situation, those words that we read that the crowd said of the church, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Let's pray and seek God's blessing. Dear Lord God, our loving and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that we can gather together this evening to uh, consider something of your glorious work uh, through the church. Lord, we pray that we would see the wonder of your hand uh, in the early church, and Lord, that we would be jealous of the things that you did and the way that you worked, and Lord, we pray that we would see something of these things in our day. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see the power of God on display, that we might once again see this world turned upside down by the power of the gospel. Lord, bless us now, we ask, as we consider these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the start of my history of the church begins in its normal place. That is, 50 days after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, about 100 people met together in that upper room, and the Holy Spirit comes down on the day of Pentecost, and 
Peter, by the power of the Spirit of God, preaches the gospel to that crowd that thought they were all drunk. And on that day, 3,000 people are added uh, to their number. And from that moment on, God will build his church in amazing ways. The gospel, rather quickly we'll go through this, the gospel was then taken to the surrounding areas from Jerusalem to Judea by the apostles and by other uh, Christians. We read uh, of Philip on the way down to, uh, on the road to Ethiopia, he gets the Ethiopian eunuch and into Africa and there he, he preaches the gospel to him and we see that man converted and taking the gospel down and Ethiopia indeed would become the oldest Christian nation in the world. We see in this early church, in these few days, they live together in a wonderful harmony but we also see the problems that come with the church. And in the very early beginnings, we see the introduction not just of leaders in the church with regards to spiritual things, but due to the issues of dealing with the food distribution, the um, role of deacons uh, is created within the church. And so we now have apostles, and we have elders, and we have deacons. At about the same time, we see persecution beginning. For the church. It didn't take long before persecution took hold against the church. The persecution would begin with the Jews. The Jews were not happy with the uh, Christians in their, their midst, and we see that early persecution against Stephen and his stoning uh, and Paul being uh, present there. We see James, the brother of John, taken, uh, his head cut off so that the Jews might be pleased and the seeking of the Jewish leadership to stop the spreading of the gospel, commanding that they don't preach these things, uh, and in the power of God, John and Peter being able to declare that they would continue, they must continue, uh, and whether it is right to obey men or God. In the hands of God, God uh, the persecution was used to actually fulfil the commission that the church was given. That is to take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the very ends of the world. And in that first persecution, we read that the people left and they took the gospel with them and they spread out to these other areas surrounding them. Paul's conversion on the way to Damascus, having sought the power of the Jerusalem church to continue his persecution in Damascus and follow the, uh, the Christians who had gone up to Syria, uh, was converted on the way uh, to Damascus and was used of God then powerfully to bring the good news to Europe. And Paul would uh, make use of the city of Antioch as the central point of his missionary journeys. That's city uh, north of uh, Jerusalem, quite a way north of Jerusalem. Um, and it was one of the largest cities in the empire. It was far larger than Jerusalem. It was far more significant than Jerusalem. And so he made use of uh, Antioch as his base. Antioch is, of course, that same place where the name Christian was first used uh, for the people of God. Uh, he, Paul's three missionary journeys that he took would bring the gospel into Europe, 
God not allowing him to take it into Asia, but church tradition suggests that he used the other apostles to take it to other parts of the world, though they are stories and we treat them as such uh, in reality. What we do know is that Paul gives us an example of missionary work in the truest sense. His sending church was the church at Antioch. And he reported back after all he did to the church at Antioch. He didn't set himself above the church or beyond the church. He submitted to the church and he returned through that to the church. And having read all of the Acts uh, of the Apostles, uh, we see the close of the, biblical church, of the biblical history of the church in 96 AD. At least that's when I think the book of the Revelation was written. Um, and the close of John on the island of Patmos with the revelation of Jesus Christ. And in that we see the whole period from about 30 to about 96 AD. Throughout this period we've seen the church grow from those few people in Jerusalem to what would be many thousands spread across an awful lot of the Mediterranean Roman Empire. Certainly up into uh, Asia Minor, into Greece, Italy and Rome, along the North African coast in uh, Egypt and possibly across to Carthage uh, at this early point. It would certainly spread there in the next century. And possibly wider into Spain, France, and maybe even into India and the uh, Persian uh, Gulf regions of the, of the world. Within these 60 years, we have 27 books of the New Testament written down so that we might know this message for all generations. They are written for us that we might know the message of Christ, the teachings of Christ. They are written for us that we might know the history of the church so that we would understand how the church came to its uh, position later on at the end of the first century with the dealings of the apostles. We see in the letters how the church dealt with issues that arose in the, first, in the early church. Heresies, misunderstandings, lack of unity and fellowship, one with another, just normal dealings within the church. And we see also uh, these letters written to the churches to strengthen them and encourage them in difficult times, in times of persecution, in times of trouble, in times of difficulty. And we see played out during this period a very clear reason why these things were there. Persecution occurred regularly throughout this period. Not all the time, not always at once, not in every place at once, but it took place regularly throughout this period. It would begin with the Jews. The Jews would persecute the church and they would seek to create problems. But that would then expand into um, the Gentile world. And we would see the opposition of the Gentile world uh, coming about. Um, we see that shown in uh, what happened in Ephesus in Acts 19. When there is a great crowd of riot going on and they're saying that Paul has come and he's going to overthrow their prophet from making these idols because his 
testimony, the testimony of Christianity is stopping people from buying their goods. It has an impact economically on the, on the pagans in the area, and so they start to object to Christianity. And eventually, that would come to the notice of the Roman state. And then the Roman state would begin its persecution of the church. It cared little for Christianity whilst it was part of Judaism. It didn't matter. It was a small thing in Jerusalem. But when Christianity had expanded across most of the Roman Empire and had affected the pagan worship and the economy that was there, then the Roman state took notice. But we find perhaps the first uh, real portion of Roman persecution, specifically um, for Christians, uh, found in Acts 18 when Paul meets uh, Aquila and, and Priscilla, who we are told Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, probably about AD 49. Um, however, in the writings that are said there, it is said because of Crestus. It's probably a misspelling of Christus because they couldn't be bothered to get it right. Um, and it was a common misspelling in, the, in this period. And so it's quite possible that the banning of the Jews, the driving of the Jews out, was because of Christianity in Rome. And so that they were pushed out from the Roman section. Claudius himself was seeking to restore Roman rights and religion in the country. He was seeking to bring about that um, elements of paganism and he wanted Rome rid of foreign religions. And hence he drove out those that would be in the way. Claudius's adopted son, Nero, hardly did better. And uh, the mad emperor uh, persecuted the believers as a, a scapegoat for the burning of Rome. Now, who burnt Rome it is an open question, but I think an awful lot of people would think that it's just Nero himself that had a happy coincidence so he could build his giant palace. Um, but he, according to Tacitus, blamed the Christians and then would use them to light his garden, literally tying them up, pouring pitch over them and setting them on fire so that they could have night parties in the garden and the people would wander around with the Christians burning in the location. It was during this time, from 50, the late 50s, that Peter and Paul were probably martyred in Rome under the Emperor Nero. Nero was the last of the Julio-Claudian emperors to reign. So following on from Julius Caesar and Augustus and down the line, the last of them was Nero. Uh, Nero was eventually, there was rebellion against him, he would commit suicide. Um, and there would be a civil war that would follow. During his reign, to put it in context of what's going on in the world, uh, the rebellion by Boudicca was put down in Britain, and the first Roman or Jewish Roman war began in 60, I want to say 66 AD, um, which... Obviously, the Jews were rebelling and revolt, revol, revolting against the rule of Rome. Um, and uh, a man called Vespasian was sent as captain 
uh, as the leader of the legions to retake Jerusalem and put those pesky Jews in their place. And during this first Jewish-Roman war, Vespasian captured the Jewish general Josephus, uh, who would go on to write the history The Jewish War, which was very pro-Roman uh, in its uh, leanings. That Roman-Jewish war would prove to be vital in determining who the next emperor of Rome would be. Uh, the fall of uh, Nero in 68 led to what historians call the year of the four emperors. Of course, it went from 68 to 69, so it wasn't a proper year. It was split over two years. But the year of the four emperors began with Galba, who um, uh, rejected uh, Nero, took uh, the emperorship, uh, and then was uh, murdered uh, by the soldiers. Otho took over from him. Um, unfortunately, he was a little late because the um, soldiers on the northern German, the Rhine border, had already decided that they wanted Vitellius to be emperor. Uh, and so Otho took his uh, place in Rome. Vitellius marched down with all the legions from the north uh, and defeated Otho in northern Italy. At the same time, the legions in the east, under the command of Vespasian, said, actually, we'll have Vespasian to be emperor. Um, and Vespasian was fortunate because the empire had been deliberately split up so that you could not be under control of more than normally two legions. No more than two. The emperors knew that it was a bad idea to allow people to have more than two legions. The only regular exception to that was Britain, which had three legions. Um, but because Vespasian was fighting against the Jews, he needed more than two legions. And he had at least four under his command, so he already had the greater part of the, uh, the army. Um, and when uh, he was declared emperor, others joined with him, uh, and the battle for uh, Rome took place. Whilst the other three were fighting over Rome, Vespasian marched on Egypt. No one there to stop him, no one there to defend it. And he knew that Egypt provided the grain for Rome. Without Egypt, great, Rome had no food. Uh, and uh, the other part of his army marched up to Rome. They won in 69 AD, and Vespasian became the emperor of Rome. After his victory, he sent his son, Titus, to Jerusalem. And he finished the job, burning down the temple in 70 AD. Vespasian is the first Flavian emperor, and he built the Colosseum in Rome. So all those things that took place before that were not at the Colosseum. Christians in the early, early, early church were not put to death in the Colosseum. It wasn't built till about 80 AD. Um, so uh, that would take place later. During the final period of biblical history, we have another rather mad emperor, Domitian, who was there to persecute the church. Again, this was not everywhere and to the same degree, but he uh, quite liked the idea of emperor worship. Most Caesars before this time had tried to keep it low-key. You can treat me as an emperor and as a god, that's okay. Domitian not only liked the idea, but required you to agree to it, that it was a sign of your submission to Rome, that you would accept him as the emperor. 
Uh, it was in this persecution that we see uh, the, or this, this persecution that we read that the martyrs in Smyrna probably took place. Um, and the idea that you would have the, the army march up to you and you could say, well, all you have to do now, here's an altar, swear your allegiance to, to Rome, just throw on the incense, say Caesar is Lord, and you can go free. Don't, and you'll die. It's a simple choice. Uh, this took place, uh, like I said, at uh, this, this time it was under Domitian that John was sent to Patmos. Um, and he, was, uh, he, he carried that through to a great degree. Trajan, the next emperor, would discontinue the practice of requiring that as a loyalty test. However, he wasn't averse to putting Christians to death. He didn't require it as a loyalty test, but we'll see later on that uh, he also was no saviour of the Christian church. It was during this time as well that the major Christian centres were, were founded that would become the Christian sees that would grow in their power and authority in the centuries to come. Uh, the ones that were founded at this time the were four. They were at Jerusalem, at Antioch, at Alexandria in Egypt, and in Rome. And later on, a fifth would be added uh, at Constantinople, um, mainly for secular power regions within the empire um, and the rise of Constantinople as a, an important political city. Of course, we also see at this time uh, the rise of error and heresy. Very early on, we see it coming. We, we read of the Judaizers bringing in works for their salvation. We read of Gnosticism in the books of John and the, uh, the opposition that, that they were there. And we're just going to consider just a, a few of those errors that came in during this time, um, because most of them are still with us. The church can't get rid of these things. They just seem to hang around. Uh, we have uh, the, the two extremes, antinomianism and legalism. We've got uh, the antinomians who are those that say Christians don't need to keep the law. It could be that the Nicolaitans were a sort of antinomian group that sought to bring about this rejection of uh, a legal, uh, any following of any, any laws. And then the legalists, of course, they take the other view that you need the law to be saved. You need to do these works to be saved. And the Judaizers that we read of in, in Galatians were clearly part of this issue that the church had to deal with and, and try and bring this under control. And, and the antinomians were clearly what, who Paul was thinking of in Romans 6. Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? We also see the error of the denial of the resurrection. Clear, early, absolute heresy that Paul was pretty emphatic in dealing with. To deny the resurrection is to deny the faith. This is an absolute fundamental. And then we see the development of Gnosticism. Gnosticism uh, grew out of a mixture of philosophies from all around uh, the world that were brought together in the Middle East. Um, it probably, as, as I was reading, grew in the Jewish world and was then infused into the Christian world. Um, but the basic idea of Gnosticism is that the world is split into good and evil. Pretty straightforward split. But the, the good world 
is linked to the spiritual. And the evil world is linked to uh, the physical. And because of this link, all of the created order is therefore evil, not because of the fall, but because it was created by an evil being. And it was fallen, and it was broken in its very creation. And so there was this bad God who... Um, who created these things, but that there was a good God over and above it that had a spark in every human. And you could understand this spark of the divine um, by having this special knowledge brought into you, a special understanding, a secret gnosis that was the way of salvation. They, they did not believe in or the Gnostic texts don't speak of sin and repentance. They speak of illusion and enlightenment. Men are simply deluded in this world, and when they have their eyes opened to the true understanding of it, then they will understand and they will bring in the salvation of all the world. In Christianity, this was extended, or in the Christian sphere this was extended, to um, link that evil God with Yahweh or Jehovah of the Old Testament. He was this bad, evil being of the, who was mean and nasty in the Old Testament. He gave the law that was unhelpful and, and he, was, he sought to chastise and, and punish men for their sins with, with physical problems and difficulties. But Jesus, well, he's, the, 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 he's been sent down from the good God, God the Father, and he brings with him that divine knowledge, that spark so that you can understand. And given that understanding, you may be saved. Now, a natural extension to this view of Jesus being the good God and bringing the good word and the fact that the physical is evil and the spirit is good was that Jesus couldn't possibly, therefore, have been physical because the physical is evil. And so it fit very quickly into a heresy called docetism, which is the rejection of the humanity of Jesus Christ. And so this uh, error through Gnosticism, this docetism through Gnosticism, came into being. In the early 2nd century, Different versions of this were applied. There wasn't one single idea of Gnosticism. There was a whole bunch of them that came about. <clears throat> the one that we're going to consider, uh, uh, or the person who we're going to consider this evening, was that one of the first ones called Marcion. Uh, and I'm going to say Sinope, but I don't have any uh, things on my letters, so I can't get the thing properly. But it was also followed up by a guy called Valentinus. Um, uh, and they themselves were objected to by the Apostolic Fathers, and specifically by uh, Irenaeus of Lyon, uh, who is beyond the scope this evening of where we're going to. That's where we'll be starting next year with Irenaeus of Lyon and what he does. Now, in reading the description of Gnosticism, um, it was, I was intrigued to find, read on the internet that the first group uh, that was suggested for today is that neo-Gnostics can be found in Scientology. Except in Scientology, you have to pay a lot of money to get your knowledge um, to find out about Phaeton and whatever he did with his space aliens. Um, you can go and find out uh, what Ron Hubbard uh, came up with in his imagination. The one that jumped out to me more was that this is the very definition of Christian science. 
Christian science spends its entire time talking about illusion and coming to a realization of understanding and knowing that you are in reality the spirit children of God and that there is no sin and there is no evil in this world and you'll come to understand it. Gnosticism, which should have died out thousands of years ago, continues even today and will be relied upon. That special knowledge uh, to get you saved. So what then would we summarise for this part of the early church history, the biblical church history? It's a time of great growth to spread the gospel across the world in a way that we could hardly imagine today. 60 years to cover most of the Mediterranean. Well, we'd be happy with 60 years if we managed to have two or three more churches around. But to grow like that, what a glorious thing it would be. It was a time of opposition. Began with the Jews, spread to the pagan world, and then Christianity became large enough to the Roman state itself. The believers during this time faced internal problems of heresy and misunderstanding, which the apostles were able to deal with. And they left us with the letters so that we would understand it. That was the point of it. And they promised that these things would come. They told them, wolves will come in sheep's clothing. They were there already, and they would come in in great numbers in the years to come. We should consider the impact that the Christian message had on the world. What a change it wrought. When we read, these have turned the world upside down, we need to understand what the world was like before Christianity came in. Because we are people who lived, to th- of have living after 2,000 years of Christian understanding. We live in a country that has been effectively led by Christian morality for over a thousand years. It is the understanding we have in the West of what is right and wrong. That's not the understanding the Romans had and the ancient world had of what was right and wrong. In the ancient world, paganism was everything. You, you worshipped every god you could. You brought them in and you, co- you, you, you would cover all your bases. And yet Christianity came in and said, there's one God. Just one. They were so firm in their belief, they were called atheists for denying all of the gods. There was a change in morality. The time uh, of the Roman uh, world... Abortion wasn't particularly able to happen, but they had a way of getting around abortion. Very late-term abortion. You just left the babies on the side after they were born. Just get rid of them. That's fine. Well, Christianity dealt with that. People changed their opinions on the value of human life. They said, actually, that child is worth something. We need to protect it. We saw what uh, I heard in one Uh, internet interview described as the first sexual revolution the first sexual revolution or the second sexual revolution took place in the 60s the liberalization of all things which effectively said women you need to behave more like men go out sleep with anyone you can that's freedom that's what you need to do. Everyone needs to be just sleeping with everyone. That's the way the world should work. Well, the first sexual revolution did the exact opposite. It said, men, 
You need to be faithful to your wives. You can't go and have mistresses. You can't go and do all these other things. You are to be faithful to your one wife. And that was a revolution. That gave equality of value and worth between men and women, which was not the case at all in that ancient world. It said it's not okay for a man to be married and then go and have all the dalliances on the side, but women, well, you should really stay at home and not do anything. It said, actually, men, you need to look after the house, you need to keep the family, you need to stay with them and be the rock that you should be at home. It was a revolution in the understanding of how the world should be. And one that is being rapidly undone in our age. There was a change in social understanding. Paul writes, there is neither slave nor free, neither Jew nor Scythian, neither rich nor... There is everything was broken down. We're all one in Christ. And all of those social structures that are in place that separated one from another in the way that you dealt with people and treated them in terms of value were swept away. What a change uh, these things brought. That when they say that they have turned the world upside down, it was in a way larger than our world is being turned upside down right now by the ideologies we see all around us. It was more profound, more glorious. What we need to see from the early church is that God can do that again. That we would trust that he could do such a work and turn this world upside down again. It's not by our strength. It's not by our abilities. We know the apostles made many mistakes. We know that they were just men. And so God can do that again. And that should be our hope and our goal and our prayer that God would do such a thing that he did in the biblical church history. But we'll move on to, to our apostolic fathers, those that knew the apostles that came. Um, the writings uh, of the, uh, at this time didn't stop. It wasn't as though the apostles wrote all their letters and then that was it. The church stopped writing and they were all finished and it was all done. People carried on writing things to each other. And these uh, three uh, letters or, or works that I'm going to say here, they will come up again. Um, and we will hear them again later in the history because some of them would come under the uh, questioning as to whether they should be in the canon of Scripture. So three early writings. The first one is the Didache. It's uh, an ancient early church manual. It basically outlined practical morality and, and Christian living in a section called The Two Ways. That is, there is a good way of living and there a bad way of living and the Christian should live the good way and avoid doing the bad way. Uh, that's basically the two ways. Uh, it uh, outlined how church services would be uh, conducted, the things that Christians should do in terms of baptism, fasting, prayer, and the Eucharist. Under baptism, it says that people should be baptized in living water, that running water. Um, and then they say it should be cold. Um, I mean, I don't think many people will be desperate for that nowadays. Um, but he finishes off by saying, if you can't get any other water, yeah, you can pour water on people three times, and that's fine. They're quite open about their mode 
of baptism. Um, they also um, spoke in this about uh, the, the government, church government, and they had only two offices, bishops and deacons. There was no more than, than these things, bishops, elders, and deacons, the bishop and elder being interchangeable. And then finally they spoke of the return of Christ. There was a re the imminent return of Christ that should be expected. The second uh, writing is the Epistle of Barnabas. No idea who wrote it. No idea who it was written to. No idea where it was written from. Although later church fathers said it was written by Barnabas and therefore it's called the Epistle of Barnabas. Um, the date of the letter is probably... It's quite a large stretch, between 70 and 130, hence I've shoved it in the post-apostolic uh, section. Um, though you can't really narrow it down any further. Um, and again, this is written in two parts. The first uh, is about theology. He gives a theological treatise and he spends his time explaining the Old Testament in spiritual ways. So he takes the practical things that occur in the Old Testament and he, they spiritualize them and apply them uh, in a spiritual understanding, things like the, uh, uh, the sacrifices that took place and how they should be understood. And then, having done the theological part, just like in many of Paul's letters, they finish off with the practical part and how you should use that. And the practical part was the two ways. Good things, bad things, do the good things, don't do the bad things. Uh, the third uh, writing is the epistle to Diognetus, which was probably the first Christian apology. Um, and in here, um, at being asked questions that they write down, I think it's five questions he's been asked, and he answers these five questions to try and explain Christianity. Um, in this book, he, he explains Christian worship and why uh, Christianity makes uh, Christians able to love one another and even to die for their faith. Seeks to show uh, the superiority of Christianity above paganism and Judaism, that there is but one God, and that he sent the word into the world so that it could be saved through him. And he says it's because of this salvation that believers can face death, because they will know that they will be with him in heaven. A simple apologetic of the faith. Those three writings that were, we don't know who wrote them, no idea about those things, um, but they will again appear later when we come to, uh, well, next year. Um, so our first uh, apostolic father uh, is Clement of Rome. Uh, most of them get the place where they're from, so it's quite easy to know their location. Clement, by uh, tradition, is said to be uh, the third or fourth bishop of Rome, with Peter being the first. Um, he was, and, and suggested that he himself was consecrated into the church by Peter. That's the, the link of this. Uh, Clement was born circa 35 AD and would die in 99 AD is the most commonly accepted year for that. Um, again, for that 99 AD, the tradition says that uh, he was banished from Rome during the reign of Trajan. Trajan, who had got rid of Domitian's um, persecution, banished the bishop of Rome or the leader of the church of Rome um, and sent him to work in a stone quarry uh, near the Black Sea. Um, the tradition then goes on to say that all of the slave workers there were very thirsty uh, and uh, Clement saw a lamb on the side of the cliff 
And when he walked up to the place where the lamb was and he put his, uh, uh, broke the stone there, water came out of the rock and he was able to give water to all of the slaves uh, that were there. Um, and for this generous act, the Romans took him, tied him to an anchor and threw him in the Black Sea, um, which was the end of uh, Clement of Rome. Uh, Clement's really known because he wrote uh, a letter to the church at Corinth. I mean, what on earth could Clement be needing to write to the church at Corinth for? Everything's going well at the church at Corinth. Well, it turns out that there were divisions in the church of Corinth that needed to be sorted out. There were a bunch of young people who had ousted the presbyters there, the, the leadership of the church, and had got them removed. Um, and Clement writes and tells them very clearly that the young people who were causing the problems needed to repent and humble themselves and submit to the leadership in the church that was there, and that they were called to love one another. He very clearly states that these elders were put in place because they were appointed by apostolic authority. And so, strangely, those people who like the apostolic continuation use this as a justification for the apostolic uh, continuation in the, uh, the church and the apostolic succession and authority. But there's no reason to read it in that way. It's just as easy to say, yes, they were appointed by apostolic authority because they were appointed correctly. And some of them may well have been appointed by the apostles because of the time we're in. But it does not mean there is an apostolic succession that needed to be followed. Rather, these positions should be honoured because of the position themselves, not because of the men that were in it or some special men that put them there. It is our duty to uh, obey the leadership that is there and honour them, even as Paul himself wrote that we are called to honour those in leadership above us. Of course, it was Trajan that had sent um, Clement to the stone quarry, uh, and it's at this time we also find Trajan corresponding with a man called Pliny the Younger, who was uh, in uh, Pontius uh, as the, the, um, the consul out there. And uh, Pliny had uh, been dealing with the Christians that were there. People had been objecting to the Christians, and he knew that it was okay uh, to try and deal with the Christians. And so he had been interviewing them, and when they had confessed to being Christians... He had, uh, he had killed them if they were not Roman citizens. And if they were Roman citizens, he'd sent them to Rome, uh, uh, to Trajan, to sort out. And he was just writing Trajan a letter to tell him what he had done. And uh, was that okay? Because there isn't technically a law against being a Christian. Um, so what exactly am I trying them for? And, and, and how do I justify this? Was basically what his letter was to Trajan. Um, what does it say here? He, he writes, um, even though they had committed no legal acts, he had put persons to death, though they were guilty of no crime and without the authority of any law. What a wonderful world uh, this was in. Uh, but he was quite sure the emperor would agree that this was okay. Um, and it turns out, the emperor did agree that it was okay, that Trajan said, no, you did the right thing, but, but I think you probably, probably don't want to go chasing people. 
So you don't need to go and hunt them out. You also need to only accept um, people uh, bringing these denunciations against Christians if they do so um, in person and not anonymously. So they have to come and say themselves, this person is a Christian. Now the reason that this is important is because the, Ro the Romans had this interesting idea that if you came and brought a case against someone and it was found to be frivolous, then the punishment for that crime was given to you. So if you brought the case that someone was a Christian and you were trying to get someone killed and it turned out that the magistrates thought that you were utterly wrong and you knew you were wrong, well then, you would die. And so this would bring a much higher bar for people to have to meet to be able to bring these accusations. Particularly as Pliny said that as he had done this, it had worked okay in the beginning, but then an awful lot of anonymous people had turned up and had started accusing everyone around them for being Christians, and he'd spoken to them, and they'd all said, I haven't been a Christian for 20 years. I, I don't do that sort of thing, and would swear to Caesar and do all of those things um, to him. And so this was, again, to try and get rid of those things. So you couldn't have anonymous denunciations. Um, he said that, Non-citizens who admitted to being Christians and refused to recant should be executed for their obstinacy. Because you're being obstinate and not recanting, therefore you should die. So that was okay. Um, but citizens should again be sent to Rome for trial. Um, and the reason why Pontius was having to deal with Christians was for the same reason of the anger of those in Ephesus that so many people had been converted to Christianity that they couldn't sell the meat that had been offered to idols in the markets. No one would buy it. And that was in the city and in the countryside. What a wonderful testimony it is to the power of Christianity, that God can change people. And you can see the changes in the things that are going on. That's how society has changed. That's how the Christian message is supposed to work. Well, the second of our three early church um, fathers, these apostolic fathers, is Ignatius of Antioch, again born around 35 AD, allegedly, uh, and died in 107 AD. Um, he was also known by the name Ignatius Theophorus, which means God-bearer, but his name Theophorus is subtly altered to Theophorus, uh, which I believe means that he was uh, upheld by God rather than one who bears God. And that was then taken um, by some to say that Ignatius was the child that Jesus took and placed in the midst of all those people, took on his knees and said, if you need to enter the kingdom of heaven, you need to be as a little child. Um, now, clearly, that's a later edition, uh, but that's the, um, the tradition that was placed on Ignatius highly unlikely but there we are um, he also is identified as having known the apostle john which is far more likely um, given that he was in antioch um, in the time of the apostles um, ignatius uh, would be taken to rome uh, in 107 a.d um, to be put on trial to determine if he was a christian and when he was found to be a christian he was then thrown to the wild animals uh, and put to death 
in Rome. But on his way to Rome, he wrote seven letters. He wrote letters to the Ephesians, to the Magnesians, to the Trallians, to the Romans, to the Philadelphians, to the Smyrnians, and to Polycarp. They're the letters that uh, he wrote. And in those letters, he basically sought to need, uh, the, he sought to convey the ideas that we need to honor and obey the church leaders to maintain unity in the church. And he said the, biggest, the two biggest issues to unity were heresy and the way that we live with each other, the things that we do. We get those two things right, the things that we do and the things that we believe, and we honor those people in the church who are our leaders, we will maintain church unity. And really, these things are the same sorts of things that we read in the New Testament. The same problems are there, the same things were coming up. Um, the biggest heresy that he opposed at the time was docetism. It was basically the denial of the humanity of Jesus Christ. And so we read in uh, his letter to the Ephesians, we have also as a physician the Lord our God, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son and Word before time began, but who afterwards became also man of Mary the Virgin, for the Word was made flesh. Being incorporeal, he was in the body. Being impassable, he was in a passable body. Being immortal, he was in a mortal body. And being life, he became subject to corruption, that he might free our souls from death and corruption and heal them and might restore them to health when they were diseased with ungodliness and wicked lusts. He was seeking to make very clear that Jesus was man. Now, whether I would agree with the term uh, he became subject to corruption uh, is a separate thing, but in this we can see that all these leaders were men, and we can debate the words that were used to time immemorial. But thankfully, we don't have to hold them in the same way that we hold Scripture. And that's really one of the lessons we need to learn from all church history. We hold Scripture front and centre, not what the early church did, as though somehow the earlier the church is, the more right it was. Where's the first error we see in the church? I'm going to suggest the first thing the church did wrong was Matthias. That's my suggestion for the first time it went wrong. It didn't take long for them to make that mistake. And if that's not the first one you want, how about, um, um, and then I can't remember their names, is it in Acts 5? Um, with the, triumph, the, the, the giving of the land and their lying. Um, yes. Thank you. Hannah and Spire. Um, the, the, there we go. How early? Have <laughs> we got errors in the church coming in? Have problems in the church? Um, so the, these, we don't look at the early church as our practice. We look at the scriptures for our practice. Anyway, that's very clear that he believed in the deity and humanity of Christ. He couldn't display it more clearly. The second issue that he held was the fruit, that the fruits of men's lives would show, and so called, uh, Chris, and, and so called on all Christians uh, to show the true fruit of love in their lives to one another. That's what the church should be. As believers who love God, the fruit of that should be love to one another. So show that love. He is commonly quoted by Catholic scholars, though for agreeing with transubstantiation and Eucharistic grace. 
So they really like him because he says, breaking one and the same bread, which is the medicine of immortality and the antidote which prevents us from dying, but a cleansing remedy driving away evil, which causes that we should live in God through Jesus Christ. And again, I desire the bread of God, the heavenly bread, the bread of life, which is the flesh of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who became afterwards the seed of David and Abraham, and I desire the drink, namely his blood, which is incorruptible love and eternal life. So we can uh, deal with that as you wish. I think there are plenty of places that you can argue what he's saying in there, but the Roman Catholics quite like those verses. However, he also said that the gospel itself is the flesh of Jesus Christ. So, if it wasn't just the bread, it was also the gospel as taught. So there are plenty of things that need to be understood from what he was doing. On his way to the trial in Rome, he became aware that there were a group of Christians seeking to get him freed from prison, to save him from his execution. And he wrote to them to say, stop, I will go to the lions. What an act of faith. But it's one that would become a problem for the church in the next hundred years. Because there will grow in the church a group of people who will see martyrdom as an express entrance to heaven. That somehow being martyred under any circumstances was a holy thing to do. And there would be a group of people who would seek martyrdom. They would provoke the state to put them to death for being a Christian. And the church had to figure out what to do during these times of persecution. What do you do with people who provoked their own death? Is that right? Well, the church would eventually come to say, no, that's not, that's a bad idea. But also at times of persecution, you've got these people who are ultra pro-dying and you've got a whole bunch of people who are running away. What do you do with those people? Again, a question they would have to sort out afterwards. I've really got to speed up. Um, our third and final um, church um, apostolic father, Polycarp. Polycarp of Smyrna, born 69 AD, died 155 AD. Some question marks over the exact dates, but it's, it's close enough. Uh, he was a disciple of John, um, and he was the bishop of Smyrna, the leader of the church in Smyrna. Um, he went to Rome uh, to discuss with the Bishop of Rome uh, when Easter should be celebrated. Easter in the Western Roman world uh, was, or rather, well, Easter in the Eastern Roman world was celebrated on the day of the Jewish Passover. That was the 14th of Nisan. In the same way that we celebrate Christmas on the same day, it therefore moves throughout the, the week. Whereas in the West... The church, as we still have, celebrates Easter on the first Sunday after the Jewish Passover. And so they went to try and reconcile, to sort these things out. Um, it didn't work. They left agreeing to disagree. Um, and he went back to Smyrna. However, whilst he was there, he met the man we're going to consider last, Marcion, who is a, a Gnostic um, man, who who came up to Smyrna to Polycarp and asked him whilst he was there, do you recognize me? To which Polycarp said, I recognize, I recognize the son of Satan. 
He was pretty forthright in his opposition to true heresy, but for things he considered secondary, he was able to open to unity across the church. In 155 AD, uh, he was uh, martyred in Smyrna. Again, the same things. You needed to confess Christ or Caesar as Lord. Uh, and when he was eventually caught um, uh, and brought to be tried, he was uh, told to denounce Christ and accept Caesar. And he gave the famous response, uh, 80 and six years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and saviour? Followed up by a threat from the consul of fire, death by fire, he replied, you threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched, but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. It's quite a statement to know that you're going to be burnt at the stake soon after. Polycarp was indeed burnt at the stake in 155 AD. Many ideas and traditions survive around this, including that the flame wouldn't burn and it didn't catch him and it didn't take him. And, uh, and so instead of the flame uh, burning him, uh, the man got up and stabbed him with a knife and so much blood came out of the body that it put all the flames out. Okay. Um, that didn't stop them in the end. The story continues that that's all right. They just took his bones and threw him on the fire anyway and made a big bonfire and burnt all the bones afterwards separately in the body. But um, yeah, on his way out, it's recorded that he said, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour so that in the company of the martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. It's quite a, uh, a statement to, to have made and reminiscent of those much latter-day saints of Latimer, Ridley, and others that were burnt uh, under Marian's persecution. Uh, in Polycarp's letter to the Philippians, it's interesting that he writes, he makes no mention of a single bishop leading the church. There is a maintenance at this early part of there being a group of people who are leading the church. There is no singular bishop mentioned in what he says. And it's noteworthy that he quotes from uh, much of Scripture. He quotes in this letter from Matthew, Acts, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Hebrews, 1 Peter, and 1 John. So an awful lot of the Scriptures are already being used very clearly um, at, at this time. And again, in the letter, he enjoins Christian unity. Uh, by bringing back those who had strayed, being gentle in conversation, being subject to one another and despising no one. His opposition to heretics, particularly Gnostics or, or the Docetic uh, views, was clear. Whoever does not confess that Jesus Christ came in the flesh is an antichrist. Whoever does not confess the testimony of the cross is of the devil. And whoever perverts the words of the Lord for their own desires and says that there is neither resurrection nor final judgment is the firstborn child of Satan. Okay. Could you imagine if someone preached like that today? And that's words they used openly. Quite a, a statement. Well, we've seen the first three uh, um, apostolic fathers. We're going to look at the first apostolic heretic, I'm going to call him. Uh, Marcion of Sinope. Um, 
around about 85 to 160 AD, he was reputedly the son of a bishop in Pontius. Um, and in the late 130s, he travelled to Rome and joined the church there, whereupon he gave the church a considerable sum of 200,000 sesterces. That is a, a reasonable amount of money. Um, however, after seeking position in the church, uh, he was excommunicated in 144 due to his heretical teachings. He was also given his money back. So they returned his 200,000 sesterces, sent him packing. He returned to Asia Minor, where he continued to lead many churches astray with his heresy called Marcionism. What a great thing it is to have a heresy named after you. Um, this is a man who, again, sought to bring in Gnostic teachings. Marcion uh, was the, the person who equated Gnostic ideas and merged them together in his own image, uh, and he equated the God of the Old Testament as being the evil God. Uh, and uh, it was the God of the Old Testament that, that was, uh, made the physical world sinful and jealous tribal God. His law was simply reciprocal. You know, reciprocal justice, an eye for an eye. There was no mercy, there was no gentleness, there was no generosity. He just simply punished mankind for their sins through suffering and death. And he said that, look, God walked in the garden. A spirit wouldn't do that. That meant he only had a physical being. And he had to ask Adam where he was. Now, the God of the New Testament knows everything. This God didn't know everything because he needed to ask Adam where he was. And so they were his theological reasons for bringing these things about. However, he considered Christ to be the fulfillment of the greater good God coming to show the way to heaven uh, and the merciful, compassionate God uh, uh, that was to show that true way of salvation. Due to his understanding, he saw Christianity not as an evolution of Judaism, but a complete change to Judaism. All of the Old Testament was a nasty God. Christianity was the way that came in the new God. Um, he also believed that Christ couldn't have come in a physical form. It was simply an illusion, a spirit that made it look like he was here. So he held to the docetic heresy. And the Marcionite church would continue for many centuries, even though it was agreed and accepted by the church as a heresy. Still, there were many Marcionite churches, particularly in the Syrian region uh, of the, the world. To justify his view, Marcion rewrote the true works of the only true apostle, who was Paul. And he removed all mentions of the physical from the one gospel he accepted, which was Luke, uh, and from ten of Paul's letters. And he said, this is the canon of Scripture. And that is really where the church had to deal with. And why I finished at that point, because how do you deal with these issues? The church needed at this point to define what the scriptures were so that they could then answer these questions. They could say, no, you can't just go and make up your own stuff and define that as the answer. And so they would come in the next century to define exactly what would be accepted as the uh, the canon of Scripture. Um, we'll sum up the Apostolic Fathers. 
Again, the whole aim of the Apostolic Fathers, they continue and continue and continue to maintain proper behavior, proper doctrine, so that church unity would stay. Nothing's changed. We need church unity. And we maintain church unity not by accepting in every fad of the world and everything that it brings in. We maintain church unity through following biblical patterns of behavior and biblical theology. That's how we stay united and together. The church, uh, the apostolic fathers, knew opposition without and wolves in sheep's clothing from within. And its teaching was to maintain the truth of the gospel, seek to live out that faith properly before all the world. And the only way that the church could make progress in the face of such opposition was living out our salvation in Christ and by looking for the coming of the Lord. How much of that we need today? We stand in a world of subjectivism, postmodern ideas coming around all around us in the world, seeking to turn it upside down. We see many places in the church in its widest sense accepting, bringing these things in as though they're beneficial and helpful. We see um, such a, a focus in many places on the ideas of men. How many books are there that we can get to tell you how to grow the church and do these things by the wisdom of men? What we need is the same goal, the same growth, to focus on the true teaching, to focus upon true life in Christ, and to see him as the only hope, strength and power that will get us there, and to remember perhaps that thing which we forget the most in churches. Christ is coming. Christ could be coming tonight. It could be this very night that he comes. It could be that the end of this world is tonight. So we should live like it. It's what Paul called the church to do. It's what the apostolic fathers called the church to do. It drops off, rather, until we get to 1000 AD, when everyone seems to think the end of the world is coming. But how it's dropped off again. The lack of us remembering that Christ is coming. My final sentence. We will show the love of Christ in our lives to one another only in the measure to the amount that we love him. So let us grow in our love for him. That's what we need as the church. That's what we need as our individual lives, that we would grow in our love for him, that it would show to others, that we might see God work in these ways that he did in this first 150 years of the church. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, our loving and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are the one God who created all things, that, Lord, you created them all perfectly, and that, Lord, you oversee them, and that at just the right time you sent your Son, born into this world, a perfect man, but also God himself. And, Lord, we thank you that he died on that cross to save us from our sins, and that, Lord, we are called to live out a life of 
holy living and honouring to you so that, Lord, we might share the gospel and bring glory to your name. Father, we pray that you would bless us by bringing honour to Christ and growing your church as we have heard of even in this first hundred years of the church. Lord, we pray that we would see such wonders of the power of the Spirit of God at work, saving souls and bringing people in. And Lord, if the world turns against us as it did in those days, then help us, Lord, to stand in that same faith, in that same strength, by the power of God, not willing to bend for the truth. But Lord, we also pray that you would help us to seek to have unity. And where, Lord, there is a secondary issue that we would not be so stubborn, but that, Lord, we would seek to have fellowship and friendship and grace one to another, and that, Lord, we would maintain love in all things until there is a primary attack upon the things of God. And then, Lord, we pray that we would stand with the strength of those men that we have heard and that we would denounce those who attack the truth of the gospel, even as they are as sons of Satan and as those who are antichrist. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen your church to learn from these things, and that, Lord, we pray we would see your Spirit poured out once again in our land, that we might see not the world turning things upside down, but, Lord, your gospel once again that we would see towns and cities where crime falls because people are converted, where we see false and evil uh, um, practices and and shops and venues, Lord, uh, which sell evil things and degraded things, unable to trade, not because people have boycotted them, but because no one wants them, because they want the things of God. Lord, we pray that you would do such a thing in our day, that we might rejoice in all that you do. And Lord, we pray that you would give us a greater vision of your glorious coming. And Lord, we pray that you would put the imminency of that coming in our hearts and our minds, that Lord, every day we would think, is this it? Is this the day you're coming? And Lord, we pray that in the imminency of your return, we would live with an immediate desire for you. For Lord, the days are short. And Lord, if our lives were short, how much we would seek to cram in. If we knew our death was coming, how much we would seek to do. But Lord, we pray that we would therefore be freed from our fears of the world and that we would be bold in the things of Christ and that, Lord, we would know that your return is imminent. There is but a short time for men to be saved before we are called to glory. Lord, bless us in these things. Help us, Lord, to walk with you in them. And Lord, we do pray that you would glorify yourself through your church. 